0: Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This episode is the keynote address from Lester Brown, delivered at ChavaCon 2014, on October 11th in Bridgeton, New Jersey. The keynote begins with Dr. Michael Edelstein, Director of the Institute for Environmental Studies at Ramapo College of New Jersey. Dr. Edelstein provides an introduction with Mr. Brown's biography and background, and how Lester came to do what he's doing. Then Mr. Brown takes the stage to discuss the state of agriculture in the world and provides three policies that can address these issues. We then end with a series of audience questions. Before we begin, I would like to thank Flavia Alaya and Father David Rivera for their invitation to cover this event. I would also like to thank the numerous sponsors who made this event possible. And to Mr. James Boner and his AV Club students at Bridgeton High School, Andrea, Angel, and Reggie, you have my deepest gratitude for allowing me to connect to the sound booth equipment and share the space with me for the day. Finally, I would like to thank all the listeners who contribute to the show. It is through your generous assistance that I can attend events like this and capture the words of such incredible speakers. Please, show your support by making a one-time donation or an ongoing, monthly subscription. Find out how at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com. Now then, on to Mr. Brown. I'll join you again afterwards.
1: We have a a wonderful opportunity today because Lester Brown is here, and it's a homecoming. Tip O'Neill is quoted as saying that all politics is local, and whether that's true or not, I think one can definitely say that all sustainability is local. And today, we have probably the keenest observer of global sustainability, but we're here at uh, Lester Brown's roots where the man, the place, and the land, and their intershaping relationships become evident. And I'm going to try to see if I can touch on some of those relationships. Our speaker's autobiography, which is available outside, is called Breaking New Ground, A Personal History. And Breaking Ground is a, a double entendre here because it's a reference to the dual prongs of Lester Brown's life. As a Bridgeton-area farmer who stops to smell the tomatoes, and as a policy guru who takes on the simple tasks of trying to save civilization from itself. No one develops better book titles than Lester, although he has more practice than probably any other single person. Uh, He told me that he's working on his, uh, he has his 52nd book coming out, and one does look for sequels to Breaking Ground, I started thinking of uh, some of them. For example, as Lester works on his book on renewable energy, if he wants to follow uh, this pattern of of breaking ground, you could call it breaking wind. And of course, uh, here in the high school, motivating uh, educators, uh, you could also call a future book breaking good, uh, which would probably also be helpful. Now, the local soil is clearly the foundation of Lester's wisdom. His plow has been beaten into a pen that's mightier than swords. The fact that he grew up on marginal soils, not in the garden state per se, meant austerity in his home. His father farmed with a team of horses. His first home had an outhouse, no indoor plumbing. He learned from the Colorado potato beetle, from raising pheasants, from growing asparagus. Bridgeton High School, the original high school down the street, was his first ethnic melting pot. Among his early distinguished honors, ones that are particularly relevant here, winner of tomato-picking con- competitions, winner with his brother Carl of the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, a membership in the 10-ton tomato club, which subsequently became the 20-ton tomato club, an early learning, I'm sure, and exponential growth. Our speaker has been an international wrestling phenomenon and an undefeatable runner, as some of you saw this morning, preparing him to wrestle the toughest problems over the longest course. And he's been shaped by other experiences as well. One of the really key ones was an opportunity to, uh, to spend time in India and Nepal as a, a young student. And at Ramapo, we send many of our students to South India on study abroad, and I have a sense of the power of that experience through how it changes them. I must say, Lester, that I particularly cheered in reading your biography when I learned that the Rutgers tomato gave way to the Ramapo tomato. So, what about achievements beyond that? Our speaker, from my standpoint, is important because he predates the National Environmental Policy Act and the beginning of the environmental era. And he's a founder, a pioneer in the kind of thinking that went into the transformation of our society to begin to address the issues that he's concerned with. And it's his contributions and that of other pioneers that made that possible. Time and again, Lester Brown has been in the right place at the right time to grasp opportunities to address key issues. An early example was that uh, working for the Department of Agriculture, uh, he was sent to India in order to evaluate the uh, five-year plan in terms of its agricultural projections, and they had numbers there about how much harvest was expected. And as he was in India and reading the paper and talking to people, he began to realize that there were multiple indications coming from everywhere around him that in fact there was a severe drought and a, a major failure of a harvest about to occur, despite what was written on the page. And stepping out from his role of just evaluating what was on paper, he evaluated what was actually on the ground. And because of his initiative in alerting the United States Department of Agriculture head, Orville Freeman, that there would be as much as a 15 million ton shortfall in the harvest, the United States undertook a major effort to, uh, to bring grain to India and saved a major, a major famine from occurring. And that inherent approach of inquiry, which he's used repeatedly, makes him the right person for the moment. At the Department of Agriculture, he was the youngest agency head in government and so he resigned rather than work under Richard Nixon. And thereafter, he began working for policy think tanks. First, the Overseas Development Council, where he wrote important books, such as Seeds of Change, about the Green Revolution, and the fact that... You can't just focus on how to increase crop yield, you have to focus on other variables like population if you're going to address issues of food. These are issues he continues to address. He then went on to make one of the two major contributions he's made to creating a policy capacity in the United States and in the world to deal with environment and sustainability. In the early 1970s, World Watch Institute grew out of a conversation between Lester and a funder in a swimming pool at a hotel where they began talking about the need for a research capacity in the United States on global environmental issues. And in World Watch, Lester recruited bright young people to work with him and together they prepared a broad array of papers that were bound as monographs. They created a long list of substantive timely books. They wrote a popular magazine. They developed the annual State of the World Report, and they created an accessible guide to uh, crucial statistical trends called Vital Signs. And those publications gave an ability to attract and reach different audiences with the same crucial information, from government to academic audiences to the public. These were translated widely, almost universally, and their reach has in fact been global. As his work his own work dominated this output, including important titles like The 29th Day, World Without Borders, By Bread Alone, Building a Sustainable Society, Saving the Planet, How Much is Enough, Last Oasis, Who Will Feed China? Lester Brown laid important foundations, therefore, for the series of United Nations Conference beginning in Stockholm, which have attempted worldwide to address these very issues. Uh, his works have been used universally at the college level including literally thousands of my own students over the last forty years have really had a foundation of learning from Lester Brown. And I want to stress that Lester's roots here as an agronomist, first a farmer and then an agronomist, have never been abandoned. If you look at the approach that is used, it's very much the approach of a farmer. You have a unique act to take mundane little noticed statistics about, for example, grain production and understand their cumulative effects, their significance for countries and regions of the world. And even though the conclusions often run against the grain, Lester has become adept at reaching and influencing opinion leaders, world leaders, with common-sense conclusions about how to reach sustainability. And that's given Lester Brown a clout that really no one else in the world has you don't just write essential stuff, but you're the consummate marketer and distributor of ideas. And in that approach, Lester Brown has reshaped our thinking, for example, about security. We now realize that uh, we can't talk about security without talking about food, without talking about water, without talking about climate. Uh, And that's a whole different frame, which is now widely adopted, that comes very strongly from this work. In 2001, Lester Brown moved to the Earth Policy Institute, whose mission is to anticipate and interpret emerging trends, writing and speaking about the findings on such topics as the new geopolitics of food. And importantly, Lester doesn't just point out the problems, but he has offered alternatives, offered a course of action, which he's called Plan B. And in such books as uh, The Eco-Economy, The four volumes of Plan B, Mobilizing to Save Civilization, World at the Edge, and Full Planet, Empty Plates. He draws upon a constantly refreshed database to offer a constantly updated understanding of what's going on in the world. An understanding that is so contemporary and so up to date that it's what everybody looks for on an ongoing basis. Putting Lester on the pressure of producing a book a year, which as a writer I can tell you is a, a real pressure. Now, Lester Brown has not only inspired a whole field, but you've mentored it. Uh, you've shaped an understanding of world process, and at the same time you've shaped a way to think about and make accessible what those processes are, taking them from the realm of uncertainty and things that can't be anticipated into things that we can actually work with. I think I can speak as a, for the whole generation of people who came after the National Environmental Policy Act As entrance uh, to this field, uh, which was not defined when you pioneered it, when you entered the field, it didn't exist. You you were a definer of the field. And when I entered it, it had had really begun to be defined, and in no small part because of your contributions. And I have literally spent my entire life working on issues of sustainability. But I also know the first time I, I saw the word was in the title of one of your early books. So as someone who's digested your work since the beginning and as a connoisseur of the best stuff out there, Lester, you've reinforced the key elements of uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, which, if you haven't read it, is a great piece of law, particularly, for example, the importance of interdisciplinarity. When that law was written, we realized as a nation that you can't just think in disciplinary silos. In fact, that's how problems are created. One has to approach problems across all the disciplines and think in an integrative way. And that's precisely what Lester has always done and modeled for everybody who is familiar with his work. In fact, it's the model that we want our students in my teaching and environmental studies and sustainability studies to use as a model because it's only the integrative approach to thinking that allows us to really understand what's going on and approach problems and move to alternatives. Your practice of integrative thinking is therefore the model that we, we use. Uh, you take data-driven analysis to examine complex interactions and find common sense but otherwise overlook conclusions. I can remember, for example, the first time I encountered the notion in one of your books that what would happen when China starts using the automobile. I can just remember reading those words and. And in reading those words, suddenly understanding something, because Chinese at that time were riding bicycles. And who, who would think, except Lester Brown, that in fact there was another phase coming? And what are the consequences of that phase? And it's just an example of time and again how Lester has allowed us to jump to examining issues that are real issues, but unless you put the pieces together, you wouldn't actually get to them. His work on food bubbles is another example of this predictive power. So using this approach, you've brought sensibility into a world of statistics, taking an earlier phase where we depended on computer modeling to, in the limits to growth, to talk about impending population crashes. But when you read Lester Brown, you can understand why, how, and maybe even when, such catastrophes might occur. You can see a key pattern in the data that others might very well miss, And in that system's awareness, you can then move to speaking in plain terms about what needs to happen to avoid or avert catastrophe. And we're in a world in which issues like climate change are dismissed as uncredible around us. And yet when you look at what Lester has done, he's created a a body of literature that is very understated in tone, uh, very much the words of a farmer, actually but very much overstated on impact. The, the impact is very strong. You've therefore become a trusted source worldwide, printed in virtually every language, read by influential leaders across the map, and you've gained a policy influence that's unmatched. In the sense of the emperor's new clothes, you're the one holding the mirror. And we come back to then to the Bridgeton roots, which continue to underlie this work, because Lester Brown remains the farmer, testing the soil and the water and looking for indications of what next year's crop uh, is going to be like. The tiller of all soils and mindful of how many cultures have collapsed because they, in fact, did not mind things like their soils. And he's here with us, using the lessons of Bridgeton uh, to save our civilization from ourselves. Lester wrote about, uh, beginning in the 10-ton tomato club, But if you make the analogy of the 10 book club, he's now up to the 52 book club and 664 editions of his work. And one sees an exponential output uh, of real productivity. Lester says that he judges himself not on his output, but on whether in fact we're reversing the trends that are undermining our future. You know, I think as an educator and as someone writing in this field and as someone working in this field, to try also to change our future outcomes. And I think that's what also brings you here, the future of of your community and how one brings out the best. I think that one has to judge what we can actually accomplish, what we can do to really change things and make things come out in a way that's very different than where they're spiraling now. And it's that challenge that, uh, as an educator at Ramapo, uh, we work on continually. I'm happy to see that we uh, have Mark here uh, speaking on behalf of the Lenape. Uh, I have the privilege of working with the Ramapo Lenape up in the north on issues. And one of the key things that we've done is come back to Native wisdom to try to guide us in where we're going. And I thought your words were uh, right on target. So coming back to Lester Brown... As I was saying, Lester has put forth the notion that it's not his productivity that counts, it's whether we're in fact reversing the trends that undermine our future. And I want to conclude by just saying that I think we can all agree that there is no doubt that we can do more with less.
2: It's just great for me to be able to come back home to see so many people I've not seen for a long, long time. Some of you, I see some gray hair, will remember the name Liz Carpenter. She worked in the Johnson White House, worked with LBJ, uh, wrote some of his better speeches. And after the Johnson years, she wrote a book called Ruffles and Flourishes. It was about her, her experience in government. And she was on book tour one night in Atlanta, Georgia, promoting Uh, ruffles and flourishes, and she happened to meet, by chance, in the hotel lobby her former White House colleague, Arthur Schlesinger. And Arthur said, uh, that was a great book of yours, I really enjoyed it. Who wrote it for you? She said, well, Arthur, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Who read it to you? (laughs) The thesis of my comments this morning are that we are in an age, we are in a transition from an age of food surpluses to one of food scarcity. When I joined the Department of Agriculture in 1959 in Washington, the Foreign Agricultural Service, the Asia Branch, The big issue then was food surpluses. We were, we had gotten cranked up in World War II and producing so much and, and feeding so much of the world that as the world recovered after, um, during the post war years, we ended up with a huge surplus capacity and trying to manage that became a a, a real headache. And then gradually as the last century progressed and we moved toward this century and into the early 21st century, the surpluses sort of disappeared, and scarcity um, became the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the the ruling sort of uh, condition. We have, since 2000, because of the tight supply, we've seen world grain prices double. Now, the effect of that on us is not very much, because we buy a loaf of bread that costs i don't know $2 $3 $5 <laughs> i haven't been shopping for a while so but it contains maybe 20 cents worth of wheat all the rest of that 3 or 5 dollars whatever it is is in the in the processing and in the marketing and so forth so we we don't really feel, if the price of wheat doubles, it doesn't really have much effect on the cost of a loaf of bread for us. But if you live in India, if you live in New Delhi, and you go to the market and buy wheat to bring home and make chapatis, if the price of wheat doubles, the price of your chapatis double. So we've been sort of sheltered from the effect of food price rises because of the complexity of our system, but the people in the developing countries have not. And I remember when I was in the Department of Agriculture, 1959 to 69, um, we, we were concerned because for some people in the world, they only had one meal a day. They so were down to one meal a day. Now, in the last few years, we have a new sort of situation emerging where people plan foodless days. They know they cannot afford to eat every day, so on Sunday night they get together and say, well, this week we won't eat on Wednesday and Saturday, for example. And the low-income segments of, of many societies are now in a situation where they cannot afford to eat every day. In India, 24% of families now regularly plan foodless days. In Nigeria, it's 27% of families that plan foodless days. In Peru, 14%. And I could go on to a list of other countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example, many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But we've seen a fundamental shift in the world food economy from one of surpluses to one of scarcity. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2007 to 2008, we saw a doubling of world grain prices. We had a poor harvest in 2007; uh, grain prices rose dramatically. And then we saw something that we have never seen before: we saw grain-exporting countries begin to restrict their exports in order to keep their domestic food prices under control. Russia and Argentina, both leading wheat exporters, restricted their exports. The Russians even banned exports for a while. And suddenly, importing countries began to feel very uneasy because they realized they could no longer count on the exporting countries to supply them. If things got tight, the exporting countries would stop exporting. And so we, we saw this sort of new geopolitics of food emerge and, and and countries began trying to figure out what to do. And one of the things in this sort of panic mode they did was to begin to buy land in other countries. We saw countries like China. China is essentially self-sufficient in grain, but it imports some 60% of all the its soybeans, and soybeans are very important not to be eaten directly, but because the soybean meal is, is, is key in mixing with grain to produce livestock and poultry. So we've, we've had this uh, situation where China buys a million acres or leases on a long-term 50-year lease, uh, a million acres in the Ukraine, for example. We see other countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, which uh, by 2016 will have used up all its underground water and will be totally dependent on grain imports. So countries like Saudi Arabia suddenly want to buy land in Africa or wherever they can find it in order to make sure that they will have food in the future. Egypt, uh, which is totally dependent on the Nile River, knows that if the up stream countries like Ethiopia and Sudan start taking more water as they are, Egypt will be in trouble. It basically does not rain in Egypt. Egypt is totally dependent on, on the Nile River. Without that river, there would not be an Egypt. So the these issues are beginning to emerge and to create a level of concern what I've called the new politics of, of food. Food is becoming the The new oil and land is becoming the new gold. These have suddenly become valuable resources. And we see investment banks like Goldman Sachs investing in land, not because they want to farm, but because they know as an asset it's going to be increasing in value. There was a a period, I don't know, I think it was over a five year period or so, that the increase in the price of land worldwide was double the increase in the Dow Jones uh, Index. So we're, we're seeing a basic shift in the world where land and water become scarce. Now, at the same time, we're beginning to recognize some new constraints on the supply side. Um, we're seeing record growth on the demand side. World population has been growing by about 80 million people a year for some decades now. 80 million people. That means there will be 219,000 people at the dinner table tonight who were not there last night. And tomorrow night there will be another 219,000 people. So it's a very substantial addition, and it's, it's, it's relentless, it, it just keeps, keeps coming. But population growth is not the only source of growing demand for grain today. It used to be uh, that it, it accounted for almost all growth. But now we also have rising affluence, And the difference between someone living in India consuming about 400 pounds of grain per day and someone living in the United States where we consume about 4, 1,400 pounds of grain per day is very substantial. And the difference is because we consume so much grain now in the form of beef and pork and poultry and eggs and so forth. So we're living high on the food chain. Um, Many of us higher on the food chain than is good even for our own health. So moving down the food chain for many of us would both take some pressure off of resources and it also enable us to lead healthier lives. So we have population growth plus rising affluence. I estimate that there are at least 3 billion people in the world today moving up the food chain. And a big chunk of that, of course, is the 1.3 billion people in China. But this movement up the food chain is now, for the first time in history, generating an annual increase in the demand for grain comparable to that from population growth. So this, this is a real challenge. And we look at, at, compare the U.S. and, and China. Per capita meat consumption in the United States is about double that in China. But because China's population is four times as large as the U.S., total meat consumption in China is double that in the United States. And we're seeing this continual movement. The other thing that this movement up the food chain has done is greatly increase the demand for corn. Corn is now the world's number one grain crop. It used to be wheat and rice, which were the two staples. But today, a typical annual harvest would be about 900 million tons of corn, about 650 million tons of wheat, and about 500 million tons of rice. So corn has become our leading grain, not because we eat much of it directly, but because it's the key to pro- to producing the, the meat, milk, and eggs that we're consuming in ever-growing quantities. Let's take a look at the supply side. We looked at demand side, population growth plus rising affluence. On the supply side, we're looking at water emerging as a major constraint, on efforts to expand food supplies. We're looking at climate change. I remember when I was, Carl and I were growing tomatoes, we would have heat and, and drought sometimes. But we didn't worry that much about it because we knew the next year things would probably go back to normal. But today there's no norm to go back to. The world's climate system is in a state of constant flux. Constraints on water are translating into constraints on the food supply. In the Arab Middle East, this is Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, in each of these four countries water use peaked some years ago because they were pumping their underground water and then the wells started going dry and the amount of water they had began to decline. That's ha- that happened in all four countries, not in exactly the same year but over a period of years. and. As a result, today, these four countries are almost in a freefall in grain production, and the Saudis project that by 2016, they will have used up all their underground water and will be out of the grain production business altogether. So this is the first group of countries in the world where water shortages are actually reducing production, shrinking the harvest, and forcing them to turn to the world market for more and more of their grain. That's sort of the, an, an extreme case. But when we look at the big three grain producers, and these are India, China, and the United States, these three countries account for half of the world grain harvest. We see a tightening water situation here. The World Bank a few years ago published a study on India where they, they estimated that 175 million people in India this is out of 1.3 billion, 1.2 billion, that 175 million people in India were being fed with grain produced by overpumping. Now, overpumping is by definition a short-term phenomenon. You can't overpump indefinitely. We have a situation in India where the water table is now falling in every state as a result of overpumping. In India, you do not need a license to drill an irrigation well and and, and buy a pump. As a result, India now has 26 million farmers who have drilled wells and are pumping underground water, which is great for increasing production in the short run, but in the long run, those wells go dry. And the rate of pumping is necessarily reduced to the rate of recharge. So we have these sort of water-created food bubbles in various countries, India being an important one. Another is China. While the World Bank estimates 175 million people in India are being fed with grain produced by overpumping, my estimate that 120 million people in China are being fed with grain produced by overpumping. So the, the water issue is, is going to be a real challenge for us. And the, the the rule of thumb is it takes a thousand tons of water to produce one ton of grain. And with world grain use now, driven by population growth and rising affluence, growing by about 41 million tons a year, 41 million tons of, of grain means 41 billion tons of water. So water is becoming um, a real issue as we look at the the projected growth in demand in the years ahead. Now, the United States is fortunate because irrigated grain production is, is not very important to us at all. We have some in western Oklahoma and southwestern Kansas, but um, from the Ogallala aquifer, which is a fossil aquifer that is, doesn't recharge. So that irrigated area has been shrinking now for for the last, oh, probably two decades. But it's not that important in our overall grain situation because most of our grain Is produced in the Corn Belt, and it's Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. It's an extraordinary piece of agricultural real estate. Iowa produces more grain than Canada. Iowa also produces more soybeans than China. I mean, it's hard to sort of get your mind around that. But we have some really great agricultural real estate, and Iowa is an example of that. So we have water shortages. We also have climate change. The rule of thumb used to be that for each one degree Celsius rise in temperature, we could expect a 10% decline in grain yields. This is a one degree Celsius rise in temperature during the summer growing season. We could expect a 10% decline in grain yields. A recent study from Stanford, based on historical data from 600 counties in the United States, which is basically all the agricultural counties, has concluded that for each one degree Celsius rise in temperature, yields fall 17%. One degree Celsius rise, yields fall 17%. Now keep in mind that the meteorologists doing the long term projections are projecting a rise in the Earth's temperature of up to 6 degrees Celsius during this century. That's the high-end projection. It's probably going to be less than that. But nonetheless, you can begin to see the effect of rising temperature on the world grain harvest. We know that photosynthesis increases with temperature up to 68 degrees. It then plateaus from 68 degrees to 95 degrees. And beyond 95 degrees, yields begin to decline. At 104 degrees, photosynthesis stops. Basically, plants go into thermal shock. They don't do anything. They just, they just try, to, try to survive. Agriculture as we know it today has evolved over an 11,000-year period of rather remarkable climate stability. I mean, there have been a few glitches here and there, but basically it hasn't changed very much. So agriculture, which started in the uh, in the Middle East, uh, southwestern Turkey area, has now become worldwide during a period of climate stability. But we may now be near the end of that period, and it's difficult to to anticipate exactly where things will go. I mean, as I mentioned before, when Carl and I were growing tomatoes back in the in the in the 50s. If we had a drought or something, we didn't worry about it because we knew things would go back to normal next year, most, most likely. And now, as I said, there's no norm to go back to. So we have water shortages, we have climate change, and we have soil erosion. We had, in this country, during the 1930s, a dust bowl. We knew what was happening. We knew we had overgrazed. Uh, we would plowed up some grassland that should have been plowed. We were plowing too much land, and we weren't employing soil conservation measures. And we knew what was happening. We had the technology to get it under control. So it, it lasted less than a decade. Uh, we planted shelter belts of trees. We did all sorts of things. We, we changed cultural practices, but we got it under control. There are today... Two huge dust storms in the world, far larger than the one we had in the 1930s. One is in the Sahelian region of Africa, in in Africa, going from Somalia across to Senegal. That Sahelian region, the Sahel, as it's called, is the area between the desert and the and and the rainforest of Africa. But overgrazing and overplowing are leading to the formation of a dust bowl that actually stretches. All the way across Africa. And there's no sign that the countries in that region have the capacity to organize and to bring the the situation under control as we were able to do in the 1930s. The other area of the world where we're seeing a huge dust bowl form is in western China. I should say the north and we, northern and western part of China. China has... Huge population to feed, and they are they've plowed uh, everything they could and they're grazing every, everything else, and they are overgrazing. to put this in perspective, the US and China are somewhat essentially the same agriculturally in terms of capacity and arable land and productivity and so forth. The United States and China each have about a hundred million head of cattle. the us has nine million sheep and goats. China has two hundred and eighty two million sheep and goats, and they are devegetating the country and The sad thing here is that the Chinese government probably does not have the political credibility to bring this situation under control, which would mean shrinking the size of goat herds at the at the village level so we're headed for a huge in fact there's already a huge dust bowl. Uh, in western and northern China. And at some point, it will become desert. And there will be a huge loss of of productive land there. So we have water shortages, we have climate change, we have soil erosion. There's more soil erosion now than at any time in in history because we've overplowed um, in in so much of the world in order to satisfy, importantly, the, the growth in population. There's a fourth constraint on efforts to expand world food production now, which I call the glass ceiling. As farmers raise yields, and we've tripled world grain yield per acre since 1950, farmers raise yields by removing moisture constraints and nutrient constraints. But once you've removed those, and once you've you've bred the most photosynthetically efficient plant you can, which we've done, then there's not much else you can do. And what is happening now in some countries, you saw this first in Japan. In Japan, which started raising rice yields back in 1850 or something, they kept raising them till about, I think it was 1993 or so. And then they flattened out. The Japanese farmers were doing everything they could think of to do. But it was the limits of photosynthesis that led to this plateauing. Rice yields in, in, in Japan have increased for now for 15, 17 years. And China's rice yields are now just 4% below those of Japan. China started much more recently in raising yields, but they only have 4% left. And unless they can go beyond the yields in Japan, which I doubt they can do, China is facing a plateauing of its rice harvest. In Western Europe, we see this with wheat. In France, wheat, wheat yields haven't increased for at least 15 years. And since that, wheat yields in, in Germany and the UK have also plateaued. So basically, the wheat harvest in, in Western Europe is no longer increasing. They've sort of hit the the glass ceiling. So it's becoming more difficult to expand world grain production fast enough, and this is why we've seen a doubling of um, grain prices over the last uh, decade or so. The question then is, what do we do? Well, one of the things that we need to do, and it wouldn't be that costly, is to raise water productivity. In most of the world now, water for farmers is free. They do not pay for irrigation water, unless they're pumping underground on their own land, and then they do... Do pay, but usually they get government subsidies. But we we have a situation where governments subsidize the use of water. In California, we subsidize, taxpayers subsidize the use of irrigation water. What we need to do is raise the price of water so that we begin treating it as a scarce resource, which it now is. So we need to start pricing water in and to raise the price to the point where it will reflect the market value of the water. So ending free water is an important part of being able to further expand the world grain harvest. We have a lot of land in the world that would produce if we had the water to go with it. So raising water productivity is number one. Number two is cutting carbon emissions. The, uh, the UN goals are to cut carbon emissions 80% by 2050. I think if we stay on that trajectory, the game will be over long before we get to 2050. I think we've got to think about cutting carbon emissions 80% by 2025. We've got to move quickly. And the exciting thing is we now have the technologies to, uh, to do that. And that's what then my next book will be about. It's called The Great Transition. Shifting from coal and oil to solar and wind. Raise water productivity, dramatically cut carbon emissions, and stabilize population. Stabilizing population is possible. There are probably 100 million women in the world today who want to have small families but lack access to reproductive health care and family planning services. Filling that gap would probably bring will population growth to a halt, or at least very close to it. And it wouldn't cost very much. Supplying 100 million women with these services, the total for that would be so small it would get lost in the rounding of our defense budget. But population growth may be a greater threat to our future security and that of the world than any any conceivable military threat. Raise water productivity, cut carbon emissions, stabilize population. These, I think, are the keys to future world food security. I thank you again very much for coming out this morning, and I'd be happy to respond to questions if we have time.
3: Yes, Mr. Brown, you've mentioned three things, general things, that we can do in the future to perhaps alleviate some of these problems. And uh, the first that I would want to address is the, the population problem we all know that uh, industrialization seems to be very addictive but in terms of of population, it seems as though the majority of the increase in population around the world occurs in areas where women and and men, for example, are uneducated. So for example, in countries like Japan, the United States, Russia, and various Scandinavian countries, you see that the population growth is at around two or less. In, In fact, it's almost to the point where It's almost like an anti-natalist position where the race would die out if it continued that way. But it seems as though most of the population growth is occurring where we have uneducated societies. And and my question would be, isn't that more of a political situation? Are we we running up against something like Lynn White, Jr., uh, saying that there are theological questions, there are political constraints on making any progress whatsoever on population growth?
2: There is some of that. The Islamic fundamentalists oppose family planning. They don't think there should be any intervention at all in the number of children that women bear. So that's an exception. Most of the world, it's just a matter of education and poverty. The two big areas where most of the projected population growth will come in the decades ahead are, one, the Indian subcontinent. That's India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. The Indian subcontinent. The other is Sub-Saharan Africa. So if we want to think about the population issue, those are the two regions of the world where we really need to concentrate. East Asia, China, Japan, Korea, and so forth, Either stable or, or even declining slightly, so we know that it 's possible for large populations to have either very slow population growth rates or even declining ones. China's increasing a bit, but it 's very slow russia's is is declining uh, We still have a um, i think we 're growing at about zero point six percent a year in in this country, but we're we 're within range of of stability so we know where we need to concentrate the resources. What we don't have at the moment is any world leadership on this issue. For example, when was the last time you heard President Obama give a speech on international affairs and talk about population? You probably can't remember because it's been a long time. It's sort of fallen off the table as an issue now. You don't hear the head of the World Bank or the UN or what have you, they, they don't talk about population much anymore, but it is, it, it, it is a threat and it's real. And I think when we begin looking at population policies and water policies, if we, if we integrate those and begin thinking about both of them together, I think the water situation will dramatically alter population policy, but we haven't done that yet. It seems so rudimentary that we ought to be thinking about our numbers versus the, the sustainable supply of water. And, and we haven't done that yet. That's I'm, I'm thinking that my next book will be on water, and the working title is When the Wells Go Dry, because that's going to be the wake-up call. But we need to focus on the issue before before that happens. Yes? I think it's time to start charging. Now, in some cases, it's fairly easy to do that. In California, where you're doing dealing with surface water, much of it's the Colorado River that's been diverted into the irrigation system, systems in Southern California. The underground water, the water that's under the land where farmers just drill wells and pump it, I think we also need, and some countries have actually begun doing this, they actually tax... The water that's pumped from underground, along with the surface water that's used for, for irrigation. And I think we need to set that tax with in mind the stabilizing of aquifers. You can overpump in the short run, but not in the long run. And the sooner we realize that we need to stabilize aquifers, stabilize the level of water tables, not pump faster than they recharge the better off we'll be. Because otherwise, you just keep going down, 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 spend more and more on drilling deeper wells and, 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 and using more energy to pump the water, and, and you end up in a, in a crisis situation. So the water issue is is on the table in terms of people wanting to make sure they get their share, but not in terms of having, for example, in the United States, a national water strategy, just a sense of how we want to manage our water resources for the good of the country over the long term. And very few countries have have done that, and yet I think it's high time that each country sit down and work out a water strategy, and where there are shared river resources, for example, the Tigris-Euphrates, which is Turkey and Syria and Iraq, that we begin working on these regional agreements. There are some, but they're not really adequate to stabilize the the situation. So I think it's time to rethink water. The other thing is, I think I mentioned, we need indicators of water productivity. We have land productivity, you know, bushels per acre, tons per hectare, however you want to do it, but we don't have. We can't say tons of grain per ton of water, for example. We don't have that. It's not part of our vocabulary. And the reason it's not is because we've always had plenty of water. So there was no need to think about it. I think we've reached the point where we have to rethink the whole water situation and come up with a strategy that reflects the current and projected uh, reality.
4: Yes, sir. This is something that we can control, the use of ethanol, because we're heading in that direction. And as you pointed out in your book, that's definitely the wrong direction to head. The other one was the fact that we use only about 20% of the fertilizer that's used in many other countries of the world because we plant suey beans, which put nitrogen into the soil, and other countries haven't you know, expounded upon that like they should. And the other one was the cost of gasoline, you pointed out, was really about $12 a gallon in the United States. And if you could expound upon that a little bit, because of the fact that we have to make sure that it comes from Saudi Arabia and all the different countries, and, and we have to have the war products to keep it flowing.
2: So so, you know, I didn't catch that number you used at the beginning of that last question. On was I, believe dollars per said, gallon?
4: I believe you said the true cost of gasoline is really around $12 a gallon. If we figure out the cost of keeping everything flowing by the wars that we have to assure that Saudi Arabia and all the different countries of the world are keeping the oil supplied to the United States.
2: Let me me begin with fertilizer, and then I'll go to uh, ethanol and gasoline. Fertilizer use in the U.S., as I recall, total fertilizer use is about half that in India and in China. And one reason is we incorporate soybeans in the rotation, but probably more important is that farmers test their soils in this country regularly so they know what the m- nutrient situation is sometimes even do plant tissue tests during the growing season to check um, and make sure the plants are getting the nutrients uh, that they uh, that they need and if they don't we you know we we apply fertilizer in the, in in midsummer if if we need to but we we test our soils now that is much more difficult in india where the average farm is not you know, several hundred acres, but rather two acres or three acres, that's a lot of soil testing, and the cost of soil testing is is a an important production cost on a, on an operation that small. If you're farming hundreds of acres, it doesn't even show up on the balance sheet. So it's it's part of the cost.